Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Powell's predicament, the Fed chief says any inflation's temporary. Investors unsure. Beijing's bounce. China unveils a cautious 6% GDP target for 2021. And crude climbs with OPEC extending their supply cuts. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. We've got another busy show ahead before we ease our way into the weekend. I tell you, there's nothing easy about the market volatility that we're seeing. And Jay Powell's jobs jolt saw stock markets end the day lower Thursday. It couldn't be clearer. Jobs, employment remain the primary focus for the Federal Reserve. It's also our focus, too, speaking of job jolts, with the latest U.S. payrolls numbers a much stronger than expected. 379,000 jobs added in February. There's a caveat, though. There was a significant downward revision to December's numbers, too. Context is key, too. Remember, the U.S. is still down some 10 million jobs since the start of the pandemic. And that is going to remain a key driver of Fed policy. Call him if you will, proletarian Powell. What a nice word. The Fed chair insisting growth will be stronger, that the economy won't overheat, that inflation will rise, but it won't be permanent. And that, of course, is why they can afford to wait before reducing support. But investors are clearly concerned about overheating. They sold longer dated bonds, pushing 10-year bond yields to fresh one-year highs. Yields pushing higher once again today, touching the 1.6% levels hit last week. Investors also sold tech stocks, which are highly sensitive to rising yields. The Nasdaq coming ever closer to that 10% correction territory and wiping out gains, in fact, for the year in yesterday's trading session. Tech futures are volatile pre-market, but they are, as you can see, currently higher. Crude prices also green, but it's a flashing of red on the investor inflation dashboard. Brent and U.S. crude both soaring to fresh one-year highs, too, after OPEC maintained their supply restrictions, further raising inflationary fears. And that is Powell's predicament and where we begin our drivers. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, I have to tell you, for every single one of those people that gained a job in the past month, they're not worried about economic overheating. This is well and truly a reopening, a recovery jobs report, it seems. Definitely, Julia. When you look further into the uh, numbers this morning, the clear reason for that upside, the you know huge beat that we had on the uh, non-farm payrolls number, we uh, had about 355,000 or so jobs being added back to the leisure and hospitality sector. And that is the big bulk of the uh, job gains. So clearly with the reopening of America, a lot of people are going back to work as you start to see restaurants and retailers having more normal hours and letting people in 
you know, obviously we're not back to pre-pandemic levels uh, just yet, and we probably won't get there anytime soon. But this is a welcome report, I think, uh, you know, particularly for uh, people in the service industry when they see that, uh, you know, jobs are coming back finally. Yeah, it's a welcome report. Any job gains remain welcome, as you say, and we've still got a long way to go. The irony here is for investors, they're already jumping ahead and worrying. And I say it in inverted commas about overheating. We've, of course, got more stimulus on the way as well from, from the government, a lot of stimulus. And they're worried about inflationary pressures too. And when Jay Powell says, as he did yesterday, look, any inflation rise is going to be temporary. The economy is not going to overheat. We're going to stick with the easy policy that we've got you kind of understand when investors go, hang on a second, um, we're not sure about this. And you see bond yields rise. Bond yields are rising yeah. because growth expectations are rising. Exactly. And bond yields were uh, perking up again this morning after the jobs report. At last check before coming on air, it looked like stocks are firmly in green futures uh, for the time being. It was a you know a bit volatile after the numbers first came out. Hopefully, Wall Street will come to its senses and this will be treated as a good news is good news sort of jobs report because you had the unemployment rate tick down, wage growth is still ticking up a little bit, but the wage growth number didn't seem to be so hot to spark even more inflation fears. So I think that could be a good thing. But again, bottom line, Julia, that Jerome Powell is giving the market what he wants. That's the irony with yesterday's sell-off. He really made it clear that the Fed is not going to jump the gun and cut back on stimulus because it's not going to worry too much about rising bond yields and inflation pressures because that's a sign of an improving healthy economy. But the market seems to be worried that maybe the Fed's going to get caught flat footed. Inflation's going to run rampant and then the Fed's going to have to raise rates aggressively and you know, really cut back on all those other uh, stimulative programs. I think that's the big concern right now. Will the Fed be asleep at the wheel when inflation comes back and then have to raise rates very quickly and very dramatically more than what the market would like? Yeah, there's nothing more ironic than good news like today being bad news. But it does feel like after that initial knee jerk reaction, the market came to its senses. But, Paul, I couldn't agree more with everything that you're saying here. And Jay Powell's trying to say it. Look, there are weaknesses in this economy that the headline numbers do not show. And we are going to try and help fix this. And we will hold steady until it's better. Paul and Monica, thank you for that. As the jobs report shows a rebound in hiring in the United States, China setting its GDP growth target of more than 6% for this year. That's actually lower than most economists expected. It was announced at the National People's Congress today, the country's biggest annual political gathering. And David Culver is in Beijing and has been watching this closely for us, David. It was a conservative number, I think, and it's not often that we call Chinese growth targets conservative, quite frankly. What might be driving some of the caution here, do you think? Conservative, cautious, not even an exact number, Julie, as you pointed out, somewhere around 6%, the greater than 6% as it was put by the premier here. It is certainly a, a number that analysts say is under the, the 7 or 8%, really by a couple of points where they, where they thought it would be, um, given uh, where China has rebounded to. I mean, what we saw this time last year was obviously a crippled economy, one that ended up uh, going up at the end of the year because conditions really returned to near normal as though it was prior to COVID. 
But you got to remember, going back to this time last year, Wuhan was still in lockdown, a 76-day lockdown in which everything was sealed off. Businesses were completely shuttered. And even after they reopened, many of those businesses, by our estimates having been there, more than half weren't coming back online. A very different situation now, but it does seem that there is a lot of caution coming from the officials in that they don't want to be a little bit uh, overeager in, in projecting here and putting their target out there. That said, it is likely they'll go well beyond that 6%. And, and also interesting to point out where some of the other focus was today as they came together for that rubber stamp parliament, defense spending at some 6.8% increase there. Uh, also, you had research and development, a big focus on R&D, Julia, and this is obviously pointed towards creating more innovation, but also lessening the reliance on countries, namely like the United States. Yeah, a natural defense mechanism to uh, the pressures that we're seeing, and we can yeah. expect that to continue too. Something else that caught my eye, David, particularly in light of the landmark court hearing that we saw yesterday with uh, Hong Kong pro-democracy activists being charged under the, the national security law, and of course, many of them not being bailed following that hearing. Uh, Li Keqiang, the Chinese Premier's comments, I'm going to quote it. Um, we, would stay, we will stay true to the letter and spirit of the principle of one country, two systems, under which the people of Hong Kong administer Hong Kong and the people of Macau administer Macau, both with a high degree of autonomy. David, what do we make of that? It is interesting that this caught your attention because this is what got the most attention here. And it seems strange because here we are still dealing with the rest of the world, the ravaging pandemic, and yet their focus is on something that lingers from two years ago, from 2019, the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. But it is still top of mind here. And last year for the two sessions, which is what the rubber stamp parliament gathering is, is colloquially called, uh, they passed the national security law. We know that was incredibly controversial. This year, they're going a step further. So what they're doing is the pro-Beijing election committee that selects the chief executive in Hong Kong. That's going to stay in place, but it's going to go a step further, Julia. They're now going to nominate and essentially choose those who are going to be part of the legislature. This solidifies what has been a tightening grip from Beijing over Hong Kong and really sends a strong message to the territory, Julia. Yeah, I mean, there will be critics looking at this and those that see the behaviours and the actions in Hong Kong and say that one country, two systems, particularly for Hong Kong, is, is entirely broken here. And, and how can they stand and say this with any seriousness? And I think what we're going to see is a strong stance, certainly coming from Western democracies. It'll be interesting to see how the Biden administration in particular is going to react to this because the, the announcement even came from an official who himself has been sanctioned by the United States. So more actions could come here. Yeah, we'll see. David Cover, great to have you with us, as always. Thank you for your context. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Pope Francis is kicking off his historic visit to Iraq by calling for an end to violence, extremism and intolerance, saying he comes as a, quote, pilgrim of peace. The leader of the world's Roman Catholics just gave a public address at the presidential palace in Baghdad, and he's now visiting a Syro-Catholic cathedral. The Pope is meeting with top political and religious officials, as well as members of Iraq's tiny Christian community, during his four-day trip. New violence in Myanmar just before the UN Security Council is due to meet on the escalating crisis. Reuters reports police opened fire on protesters in Mandalay today, killing one. The Red Cross is now joining calls for Myanmar's military rulers to end the crackdown on anti-coup demonstrations. 
Britain's Prince Philip has been transferred back to a private hospital after undergoing what Buckingham Palace calls a, quote, successful heart procedure. It says Queen Elizabeth's 99-year-old husband will continue to receive treatment for a number of days. Good news there. Okay, still to come on First Move is Chile races ahead with an extremely rapid vaccine rollout. We have the president of the nation. And as cinemas reopen in New York City and elsewhere, would you go back? And what's left to watch? All that coming up. Stay with First Move. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where we've seen some pretty choppy swings in U.S. futures as a better-than-expected U.S. jobs report pushes bond yields to fresh one-year highs. That's 10-year bond yields. Nice job gains reported in manufacturing as well as some of the hardest-hit sectors like bars and restaurants as more parts of the U.S. economy open up. As I said, it's a reopening report. We are now sitting firmly in the green. The reflation trade alive and well in the oil sector too. OPEC's decision not to turn on the spigots gives American majors the open road to produce more as prices rise. Marathon Oil, Occidental, Conoco, Phillips, all higher pre-market. It's those oil gains as well that are lifting these stocks after big upward moves yesterday too. Now, amid a surge of COVID-19 and with hospitals on the brink of collapse, Brazil's President Bolsonaro continues to downplay the crisis, saying that if it were up to him, Brazil would have never had any lockdowns. Shasta Darlington is in Sao Paulo and has the latest. The COVID-19 pandemic is ravaging Brazil yet again. On Thursday, 1,699 people died, just shy of the record number of deaths registered the day before. The health ministry also reported more than 75,000 new cases, the second highest number since the pandemic began a year ago. The new wave of infections, fueled by people flaunting social isolation measures and by a dangerous new variant, has overwhelmed hospitals. The healthcare systems in almost three quarters of Brazilian states are on the verge of collapse, with ICU occupancy over 80%. Several cities and states have declared a lockdown, forcing all but essential services to close. But Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has continued to criticize the restrictions. On Wednesday, he said that if it were up to him, there would never be a lockdown. At an official event on Thursday, he declared, quote, we have to face our problems, stop being sissies, he said. Enough whining, how long are they going to keep on crying? Brazil has the world's second highest number of COVID-related deaths and the third highest number of confirmed cases, but it has vaccinated less than 4% of the population. Shasta Darlington, CNN, Sao Paulo. And we're going to be back in Latin America later with the president of Chile to get their take on vaccine rollouts. But first, I just want to give you a look at what we're seeing in the crude oil market, because crude prices and oil soaring now at 13 month highs after OPEC plus extended its supply cuts. Saudi Arabia's energy minister explained why, saying it was too early to bet on a recovery. The jury is still out. Uh, there are those who believe in this and there are those who when you have this unpredictability and uncertainty, I think there are choices you could make. I belong to the school of being conservative and taking uh, uh, things uh, in, an, uh, in a more precautionary way. And uh, I will believe it when I see it. 
And John Defterius joins us now. John, great to have you with us. I loved his comments, actually, after the meeting. We're not fast. We are not furious. We are cautious. And he won the day. They hold <laughs> steady, at least for now, until we have greater clarity, it seems. Yeah, talk about a mismatch of expectations, right, Julia? Some in the market were expecting 1.5 million barrels a day. Uh, and the Saudis were down here and, and a paltry offer of 150,000 uh, barrels. It had Goldman Sachs already changed its target for the third quarter to $85 a barrel. And they said this new strategy to be more nimble with OPEC is actually keeping the market guessing, which is not such a bad thing, right? Uh, let's take a stock of where we are today uh, after that uh, uh, measly cut. It's uh, 6.85 million barrels a day for the collective group of OPEC 23, the OPEC plus. And then Saudi Arabia made it very clear, we're going to keep our million till the end of April. Uh, so what had changed at this meeting, from what I can see here, is that there's a lot more trust in the data they're seeing, and particularly with the Saudi strategy. And he was the only one that chaired the press conference as well. If you go back to March 2020, Julia, uh, the Saudis wanted to cut deeper because they said the pandemic will knock the legs from underneath the oil market. Russia didn't agree, and a lot of the other players uh, didn't agree to go that quickly, deeply, and they turned out to be right. So the consensus is there right now. So what does that tell us uh, going forward? Uh, it was interesting. I said to the, uh, the minister during the press conference afterwards, Abdulaziz uh, bin Salman, why don't you trust what you're seeing right now? Uh, the stimulus that's in the system, the inflation numbers going up, uh, the growth that's just around the corner. And then he pointed to me and said, look, uh, you should understand us now after a decade in the region. We're Bedouins. Uh, we're very wary. We're cautious. Uh, we don't see a reason to rush. We want to see the whites in the eyes of our opponents right now. And as I suggested to you before, Julia, they like to keep people guessing uh, and pay the price for what you're going to do if you're going to take a position that's not aligned with OPEC+. Plus. Yeah, well, I mean, I think everybody's got scarred by the price wars, quite frankly. But when those um, sleeping shale bears wake, the Saudis will respond. John, we have to leave it there, but we mm. will reconvene on this conversation very soon, I'm sure. John Devterius, thank you so much for that. All right. Now, as I mentioned earlier, on to one of the world's most rapid vaccine rollouts. Chile has vaccinated nearly one fifth of its population against COVID-19. That's a higher rate than any country except Israel, the UAE, the United States and the UK. The government acted fast to secure vaccine supplies. Contracts with Pfizer, J&J, AstraZeneca and Sinovac more than covers its needs. By June, Chile wants to have vaccinated 15 million people out of a population of more than 18. And I'm pleased to say joining us now is Sebastian Piñera. He's the president of Chile. Mr. President, fantastic to have you um, on the show. Congratulations on the vaccine rollout. I think the key here, and I mentioned it, was simply securing supplies very early on, including with your largest trading partner, China. Good morning, Julia. Thank you very much for your congratulations. Well, that's true. We started uh, negotiating the acquisition of vaccine in April, May, and by now we have secured more than 36 million doses. And that is enough to cover our whole population. We, our target is very simple to vaccinate our risky population, which is uh, basically 5 million people, before the end of this month, and to vaccinate the whole population, the whole objective population, around 15 million people by the end of this semester. It's a, it's a fantastic speed and results. The primary vaccine that you're using at this moment is, as I mentioned, their Sinovac from China. 
just a handful of, of European nations, clearly not the United States, are using this vaccine. How are you managing concerns about efficacy, data, the safety of this vaccine as you, you give it to your population? Well, right now we are vaccinating with Pfizer and Sinovac. Sinovac has been approved by very prestigious international health institutions, equivalent to the FDA, and also it has been approved by our own public health institute. And therefore, we have made sure that it is safe and efficient. We sent our own people to China to confirm that it was safe and secure. And therefore, we're very confident. And but we will also use G&G, Sinopharm, and AstraZeneca vaccines. And how confident are you that you can get and meet your targets, assuming the supplies are there? Because it's an incredibly fast rollout. Are you seeing any resistance from people saying they're afraid to take the vaccine? Because it is voluntary and, of course, it is free in your country too. Well, the process of our vaccination is, first of all, is voluntary and is absolutely free. We have faced very little opposition because we put together a very strong information campaign to convince people that it was necessary, useful, safe and efficient to get vaccinated. But basically, what are the key aspects that have made our case successful? First of all, that we started to negotiate the acquisition of this vaccine very, very early, April, May. And at that time, we were able to sign contracts or reach agreements that can guarantee us that we will have 36 million uh, doses of the vaccines. And second, because our health, our immunization program is a very sound and solid one. Chile has always had a very sound health, public health system. And therefore, we have the vaccines and we have the capacity to distribute those vaccines all over the country, to every corner of the country. That's why we are vaccinating. Yesterday, we vaccinated more than 300,000 people in one day. And that's what, why we are really pushing this process, because we want to vaccinate our population as soon as possible. You are moving far quicker than many, most other nations around the world, but specifically in Latin America too. Once you have herd immunity, we hope, by the middle of this year in your country, are you going to apply perhaps restrictions on other nations? Is it going to mean restrictions or immunity passports, for example, for your people going elsewhere in case you bring the virus back into the country? How is it going to work? What are you telling citizens? Well, we are working very hard to get that herd immunization. And we hope that we'll have it by mid-year, before the end of June. We are following very closely the experience of other countries like the UK, the US, Israel. And of course, we want to keep our country safe. That's why we're putting many restrictions on to avoid new, new viruses to get into the country. But you know, this is something that the whole world is fighting against. And uh, we were extremely uh, and very hardly hit by this pandemic. But I think that we were able to strengthen our health system to avoid the last, the last bad dilemma. And we were able to acquire the, the vaccines in order to protect our population. Our main concern is to protect the health and the life of our people. And we are working on that every day, 24 hours a day. 
But you're open to border restrictions if necessary to protect your people. We have border restrictions. For instance, nobody can come to Chile without yeah. Nobody can come to Chile without a PCR taken in the, the in the origin point with at least with not, not more than 72 hours uh, time. And in some cases, when they get here, they have to take another PCR, PCR test. We, of course, we are protecting our borders because that's something that you have to do. And we are trying to work together with all the Latin American countries to coordinate our work. For instance, this is something different, but we are very interested and we are promoting a new international treaty because the world is not prepared. And we have, that has been proved with this pandemic to face this kind of pandemic and the ones that will come in the future. We need a pandemic treaty and we need to strengthen the World Health Organization. And we are working on that with the European Union. We are working with that because that's something that we, we needed, that we needed and we need it urgently. We certainly all need to work in a more coordinated fashion if we uh, face this ever again. Um, President Pinera, you were challenged coming into this crisis. I want to move on and talk about recovery. You were challenged coming into this crisis. You were seeing protests in the country over things like inequality, despite the rise in wealth that the nation's seen over a number of decades now. Uh, Obviously, every nation, I think, around the world has seen an acceleration in inequality as a result of the, the economic damage faced. What now? Has it left Chile in a, in a worse position? And how do you address this from here on out? One minor point, but important point. This pandemic has shown that with the two superpowers, and I'm talking about China and the US, instead of collaborating to face this pandemic, they they face each other, it doesn't work. We need more collaboration. We need a better institutions. We need a pandemic treaty. With respect to your question, of course, we faced tough times in late 1918. Despite that the last three decades in our country has been a successful and fruitful story. We were able to increase our our GDP per capita by five times to reduce poverty from more than 50% to less than 10%. But people want more, and that's right. That's why we heard the message of the people. And that's why we are working in a new constitution in, within our, our legal framework, peacefully and in a participative way. We have strengthened our uh, social protect, protection net, and at the same time, we have put together a very strong package to help people, to bring relief and help to the people that are suffering because of the pandemia and the pandemic and the economic recession. But the economy, the Chilean economy and the Chilean society have shown to be very, very sound. I am really proud of the way that the Chilean people have faced both the pandemic and the international economic recession. And that's why I hope that this year we will recover all the losses that we had to face last year. For instance, last year, when GDP went down by 6%, we hope that we will recover that 6% this year. And at the same time, we are facing the pandemic, and we have put together a social protection safety net that today is protecting, helping, giving relief to more than 14 million people. Three out of four of every Chilean are being protected and helped by this social protective social net. President Pinera, I have to um, wrap up the interview there. Please come back and talk to us. 
when you get to that point of having vaccinated uh, 50 million people by the summer. And we'll talk more about plans for uh, recovery as well. The president of Chile there, Sebastian Piñera. Seth, thank you for joining us on the show today. All right, the market opens next. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. Wall Street is open for trading this Friday. And what a day it's been already. We're only a few minutes into the session. We have a higher open for stocks on news of a big jump in U.S. job gains last month. A much better than expected 379,000 jobs added to the U.S. economy in the month of February. The first full month of jobs data, of course, for the Biden presidency, too. An astounding 355,000 jobs were added back to the hard-hit leisure and hospitality sector in particular. Stocks are higher now, but investors clearly still nervous. Eyeing the action in the U.S. bond market, where yields are testing in the 10-year bond, 1.6% levels hit last week. Jay Powell said he's not perturbed, but some talk in the markets today that yields might soon hit that 2% level. Joining us now, Torsten Slock, Chief Economist at Apollo Global Management. Torsten, always great to have you on the show. Let's start with the jobs. Just put that number into perspective. I called it a recovery report, but we're still down many millions of jobs in the U.S. economy. Absolutely, Julian. That's a very important context for this discussion that uh, today's number was good. But uh, if you compare this where we were in total employment in the U.S. economy in February of 2020, we're still nine and a half million jobs behind. And this is what uh, Jay Powell was talking about earlier this week. We still have a long, long way to go before we get back to the level of employment that we had in February. So it's a good start. And it certainly is moving things in the right direction. And the direction of travel, as uh, Brainard has been saying at the FOMC, is going in the right way. But uh, broadly speaking, we still have a long road ahead. Markets are nervous. Investors are nervous. Jay Powell's holding the line and saying to your exact point there, there are underlying weaknesses in this jobs market, people that still need to be brought back from the sidelines that perhaps aren't reflected, whether we're looking at the unemployment data or the monthly job data in particular. Torsten, is Jay Powell getting it right in your mind? I think he's 100% right. Uh, but what the market is beginning to price is the three relatively strong tailwinds that we have in the economy. Uh, first of all, the pandemic is ending in the next few months. I mean, this is what Dr. Fauci has been talking about. This is what you've been covering so well on the show. I mean, we do see things getting better. Uh, we can discuss the exact timing of that. But that should mean that people should begin to go more to restaurants, to fly, stay at hotels. All these things will be good for the economy. We have a big fiscal stimulus package also coming along potentially very soon. And finally, Finally, we have a significant amount of savings that also should be helpful for consumers. So broadly speaking, we do have some tailwinds that markets are beginning to price in. And in that sense, it makes sense. Jay Powell says we're still nine and a half, 10 million jobs behind. Uh, but the market is saying, yeah, we, we know that. But uh, let's see over the next few quarters where we will get some stronger growth. And then we can start thinking about what the Fed might be doing. But for now, the Fed is, in my view, 100 percent correct in the messaging that they're sending here to the market. It's a wall of money, a tsunami of money. If we're talking about $1.9 trillion worth of stimulus, you've got a great chart as well. And we have that showing how much savings are out there. We're talking about $1.8 trillion since March. How much of that might get spent, Torsten? Because when you're concerned about inflation, and sometimes you can be just, it can be described as too much money chasing too few goods, uh, there's a lot of money going to be chasing something perhaps this year. 
Absolutely, Julia. And this is at the core of the discussion, of course, not only in bond markets, but this is also at the core of the discussion in the stock market. Which sectors in the S&P 500 would be benefiting from this wall of money potentially getting unleashed? As you say, what we have, of course, seen during the pandemic is that actual consumption started going down because it wasn't possible to go to restaurants. It wasn't possible to go to sporting events or concerts or stay at hotels or fly and travel. So for that reason, we did see consumer spending decline. And at the same time, we saw incomes go up. So if consumption goes down and incomes goes up, incomes went up because there were more government stimulus coming, both with $1,200 stimulus checks first. Now we had another set of $600 stimulus checks. And now we may get another round of $1,400 stimulus checks. All that adds up to a fairly significant amount of savings that, as you say, is almost around $2 trillion. And as you exactly are alluding to here, the question becomes how much of that will be spent. And we don't really know. So the Fed probably says, we don't really know exactly how much of that will be spent. If you're very optimistic, people would say a lot of that will be spent. Others would argue, well, households are already flush with cash. So if you send another $1,400 check, you might not spend that because you already have a lot of cash. So there's a very significant debate about how much will be spent. But I do think that we should expect to see acceleration in consumer spending growth across the board, in particular consumer discretionary, but also in CapEx spending. And that should be lifting GDP growth. So this is a wall of money, as you're mentioning, that I think is potentially a huge upside risk to the outlook where we're standing at the moment. Janet Yellen's words come to my mind when she said, err on the side of doing too much rather than doing too little. If we look at what's going on in the bond markets, then we can tie it back perhaps to the broader sentiment that we're seeing in this strange phenomenon where we had it briefly this morning. Good news was bad news for the stock market. At the peak of the crisis, the Federal Reserve was buying, what, $75 billion worth of bonds every month. They're now buying less than that. But with all that stimulus money, financial aid money, comes a lot of borrowing too. What's the net result of the buying that the Fed does and then all the borrowing now that the Treasury is going to be doing going forward? Because that also has a, an effect on where bond yields should be, never mind where they are. 100% this is extremely important because in bond markets, it's all about what is the supply of Treasuries relative to what is the demand for treasuries. And supply of treasuries, if you have a lot of fiscal packages, which make complete sense given the crisis that we've been through, and of course that has required a lot more treasury issuance, that means that the supply of government bonds goes up. And at the same time, demand in particular in the beginning of the COVID crisis came from the Federal Reserve. Exactly as you said, the Federal Reserve was very aggressively buying US treasuries to try to keep long-term interest rates from going up and keep them very, very low. So now we are in a situation where the Fed is no longer buying that much in treasuries. And at the same time, we still have more fiscal packages, so the supply is still very elevated. So now we have come to a situation where supply has crossed through demand from the Fed. And this is now beginning to, because, of course, become an issue in government bond markets in the long end, where the question becomes, can the baton be handed from the Federal Reserve buying a lot of treasuries to private investors? Is it to foreigners? Is it to pension funds? Is it investment um, companies in the U.S.? Is it abroad? Where is it that demand is going to come from now that the Fed is no longer buying as much in treasuries as they did in the beginning of the crisis? So the bottom line in this picture here is that, uh, yes, the demand from the Fed in treasuries is going down and the supply of treasuries because of fiscal packages has been going up. So for that backdrop, it's not really a surprise that we also have this more, call it technical supply and demand imbalance in financial markets. That's also putting some upward pressure on long-term government bond yields at the moment. We'll call it digestion issues and it has nothing to do with our breakfast. 
a lot of what we're seeing here makes sense, I think, for all these reasons. And that's also the bottom line here. Torsten Slock, great to get your perspective, as always. Chief Economist at Apollo Global Management there. Thank you. All right. After the break, take your seats and no talking, please. Cinema is coming back from the brink. We shut almost a thousand theaters in 15 countries on three continents. It's been a long, tough road. As Greens reopen here in New York and elsewhere, what are the rules and what's left to see? That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Over the last year, COVID-19 brought Hollywood to its knees, taking with it cinemas large and small. For those still in business, the drip feed of vaccine brings hopes of a rebound. Listen to the tone of the chief executive of AMC. I was on the phone two days ago with Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, and I told him that he was the most important man in the movie theater business because if it weren't for Pfizer and Moderna and the other vaccine makers... Uh, We might have had a very unhappy ending of the story. The National Association of Theatre Owners represents at least 68,000 screens in 101 different countries, from the big chains to the independent operators. It's celebrating today's reopenings of some screens in New York City at one quarter capacity. John Fithian is the association's president and CEO and joins us now. John, great to have you with us. There will be people around the world going, hey, you know, there's many countries and nations and cities with cinemas that are struggling. But just explain to us the importance of the Big Apple's cinemas for the industry, for culture, for critiques as well of the movies that come to market. Well, thank you for having me on, Julia. And All those things are correct. New York City is very important to the movie industry for a lot of different reasons. It's a very significant market, of course, but its symbolism weighs much bigger than just the market itself. And that is that the movie studios who give us our movies have been waiting for New York to open before they could schedule uh, the type of movies that really bring people out of their homes and into the cinemas. So New York opening is a sign that the movie business is coming back. uh, And that means it's coming back all around the world. And we're very excited about today. Vaccines are a game changer, but they've also been a double edged sword for the movie industry, because I think in terms of timing, the movie makers, the studios have looked at it and gone, look, we're not going to bring our big ones back to the cinemas. We're going to stream them in the interim or delay them worse until we have more and more people with vaccines. And that's been a problem. I look at Time Out and everything that I could see in a cinema in New York, I've either watched or could watch and stream. Well, certainly during the pandemic, the movie studios have carefully guarded their properties, their biggest movies that they've invested hundreds of millions of dollars to make. Uh, But we see light at the end of that tunnel. Uh, And the tunnel, of course, is accelerating because of the vaccines. And as they roll out, we see movie studios uh, solidify their schedules. So May and June and July have some really big movies scheduled now. And just as President Biden was suggesting that all adults in the United States get the vaccine by the end of May, we started to see movies pop up on the schedule in May and June. So we're we're excited that the light is at the end of that tunnel. Uh, as we begin to open up cinemas, we're opening them up safely. We have a set of protocols called Cinema Safe that were designed by epidemiologists. We're very proud that not a single case of COVID transmission has happened at a movie theater anywhere in the world. Uh, and so people know that they can come out safely. And with these big movies coming back, they can come out and see some really great shows. You're arguing that cinemas are safer than restaurants, gyms, bars. 
even if we raise capacity from the 25% in New York? That, that is correct. And the science behind it is that when you go to watch a movie, uh, you're all sitting in the same, facing the same direction. Uh, we have new good ventilation systems to take care of the air, and you're a passive audience. You're watching a show as opposed to a restaurant or a religious institution or a gym where you're an active participant talking, uh, facing each other. And so cinemas are actually quite safe. We do start off with very limited capacity. In New York, it's 25%. In some other places, it's 50% now. And so when you buy your tickets, your group can sit together, but the social distancing is enforced by our algorithm, so there's spacing between you uh, and the other parties in the cinema. And as the vaccines continue to roll out uh, and as the, the virus goes down, uh, those capacities will be increased as we get into the busy movie season. Are you in favor of vaccine requirement to allow people into cinemas? No, I don't think we want to have a requirement, but we do strongly encourage people to get the vaccine. Um, it's, it's just safer for everyone if everyone gets the vaccine. And as we as we approach the, the, the right number of people getting vaccinated and get to herd immunity, then life will really indeed come back to normal. But we, we don't think it's the, the cinema's uh, responsibility or, or appropriate role to tell people they have to be vaccinated, but we do strongly encourage people to get a vaccine. John, China's recovery and the new year spending in cinemas was astonishing. In fact, bigger than a year ago. Do you think we could see the same kind of recovery post the summer, to your point, in the United States specifically for, for recovery and maybe in other nations like the UK as well that are moving quickly with vaccines? We really do. And China has been the bellwether throughout, right? That's where the pandemic started. It spread from China. Theaters closed down first in China uh, back in January of last year. Uh, and as the pandemic spread around the world, of course, theaters closed around the world. But then as China got the pandemic under control, uh, people flooded back to their cinemas. In fact, recently, a Chinese movie opened to a bigger opening than any Hollywood movie has ever uh, had. And so what we're seeing, the people are really anxious and interested to get out of their homes, get off their couches, come back out with their family and friends and see a great movie on the big screen. And China is now where we will believe we'll be in the Western world in a few months when we get the virus under control, when the vaccines get out there, when the movies come back. We're going to see people storming back to cinemas because they're just so tired of watching their entertainment at home. John, you can't see me, but I have everything crossed. I'll cross my arms as well. Thank you. Excellent. Great to have you on. And Thank great you. to get some optimism as well. John Fithian, President and CEO of the National Association of Theatre Operators. Great to chat to you. We're back after this. Stay with us. Fancy a Michael Jackson-style moonwalk? Well, a Japanese billionaire is inviting eight people to join him on a SpaceX mission around the moon, and it's free of charge. Selena Wang has all the details. Japanese billionaire Yusaku Mezawa is looking for eight members of the public to join him on a six-day trip around the moon. The trip is slated to take off in 2023 on SpaceX's Starship rocket. Anyone can apply from now until March 14th, and the trip will be free. Billionaire Meizawa made his fortune by starting the online e-commerce fashion company Zozo Town. He says he's paying for the entirety of the trip. SpaceX founder Elon Musk said this trip could venture further than any human has gone before from Earth, perhaps even further than the distance traveled by the Apollo missions. It'll be the first uh, private space flight, first commercial space flight uh, with humans beyond Earth orbit. So this has never occurred before. 
and expect it's uh, gonna, we're going to go past the moon. Meizawa made headlines in 2018 when SpaceX announced that he'd be their first private customer for a trip around the moon. At the time, he said he would invite artists to come with him. Later, he said he was searching for his, quote, life partner to come on the trip with him. Now he's opening this to the general public. He says there are two main criteria they are looking for for selection. One is that the applicant should be seeking to push the envelope in their field of work by going to space. The second is that they should be willing to support their fellow crew members during their journey. Now, the Starship, which is SpaceX's next generation reusable spacecraft, is what will be used for this trip. Anyone applying is going to need a healthy appetite for risk because the SpaceX Starship rocket is still in early stages of development. Only early prototypes have been tested so far, and recent test flights have ended in explosion. The Elon Musk says he is confident that a safe rocket will be ready by 2023. I'm highly confident that uh, we will ha have reached orbit many times with Starship before 2023, uh, and that it will be uh, safe enough for human transport by 2023. In a video, Meizawa said he's a little scared, but he is more curious. Selena Wang, CNN, Tokyo. And from the moon to the markets and a little bump. U.S. stocks now mixed in early trading after today's stronger than expected U.S. jobs report. Plenty of volatility in the tech sector. Look, we've done a one percentage point about turn as investors weigh an encouraging employment picture on the one hand with higher bond yields, as we've discussed on the other, energy, far and away the best sector gainer today as OPEC Plus holds the line on increased production. Financials also strong gainers, all those leveraged to stronger rates and recovery improving. A mixed picture. We'll see how the session progresses, but that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages in the coming hours. Search for at CNN. And for now, that's it from me. Have a very safe weekend and connect the world with Becky Anderson. Is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.